Today on Categorical Imperatives, I want to talk about what will happen if the Supreme Court ends up reaffirming Roe v. Wade by ruling against Mississippi in the case of Dobbs v. Jackson's Whole Women Health, and why this case uh, is far more likely than many people are assuming to turn out that way, and ultimately why this one case will largely decide the future of the legal conservative movement. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the program, I would especially like to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. And if you aren't new to the program, you might be looking at the screen right now uh, and asking yourself, why is he using an old intro-outro animation in place of his normal static backdrop? Well, I want to talk to you guys about that real quick because I could use your help with something here too. So uh, I had someone reach out to me uh, recently with some interesting suggestions on ways to make the show more visually appealing. Uh, now, I had been holding off on doing these kinds of changes, hoping that I would be able to uh, get a new license for the software I used to use that allowed me to make the, the very visually appealing show that I used to do with tons of animations and clips uh, and regular Hitler, Hitler memes and uh, my Woodrow Wilson game show and all of those fun things that I used to do. And unless until I am able to uh, raise enough money to do that uh, and return to doing the show that way as I would really like to, uh, it has been suggested that I uh, replace the static background with something uh, dynamic and animated, which is an obviously great suggestion. There's also been another suggestion that I maybe consider changing uh, the show's mascot from the Eloso Bear to something else. I'm not entirely sure that's the right move, but I'm willing to give it a try and see how it goes. So, for the next few episodes, I am going to be experimenting with various ways uh, to uh, bring those changes in. But I could really use your guys' help because I want you to let me know either down in the comments or if you prefer, you can always send me an email Categorical imperatives at gmx.com and let me know what you think about the changes that I am experimenting with. I'm looking for honest appraisal, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's an improvement or it's worse. I, I, I want your honest opinions on this. And then the other thing you could do is if any of you out there are, are good with visual arts uh, and any of you have the motivation to uh, possibly create a new backdrop for me or to maybe even come up with a new uh, mascot to use for the show in place of the LOSO bear. I would absolutely love to uh, get some submissions from viewers, since you guys are, in fact, the reason I I'm even concerned with these sorts of improvements. I want to make the best show I can for you. So any submissions can be sent to that same email address, categoricalimperatives at gmx.com. All right, and on with the show. So, Dobbs is, of course, uh, the case uh, involving the, the Missouri law, excuse me, the Mississippi law, that bans abortions uh, after 15 weeks, which is a bill that uh, is at least under uh, Roe's rigid trimester framework and Casey's undue burden standard facially unconstitutional. Now, the crux being that well, here the first thing to note is is why uh, this supposedly conservative majority court that we have right now really doesn't mean all that much when it comes to the outcome of the case, uh, and there are a couple reasons for that. So, the first one is to consider the makeup of the court in the past when they have decided abortion cases. If you consider Roe v. Wade. This was decided right after a massive conservative shift in which Richard Nixon was able to appoint four very conservative, strict constructionist judges in a period of two years. And yet, we ended up with the court voting 7-2 to two in favor of Roe v. Wade, the only 
Uh, new Republican appointee who dissented was Justice Rehnquist. And uh, the only other person who dissented uh, was not a Nixon appointee, wasn't even a conservative. It was Justice Byron White, a Kennedy-appointed liberal justice. Now, conservatives, after Roe, came to rightly believe that a constitutional amendment banning abortion was just unrealistic. So they needed a stronger conservative presence on the court if they wanted to overturn Roe. And that is certainly what they had in 1992. Now, at that point, eight of the justices on the court were conservative justices appointed by Reagan and Bush. And the only remaining liberal justice was Justice Byron White, who voted against Roe. So, you would think that we have an easy vote in 1992 in Planned Parenthood v. Casey to overturn Roe. And yet, by 5-4, to four, the court ruled to basically reaffirm Roe. Now, I have done Today in Supreme Court History videos on both of those cases already, uh, so I will link to them in a card in the upper right-hand corner right about now, or also down in the description. Uh, those are actually, I think, two of the better videos I've, I've done in that series, so I would recommend checking those out if you haven't before. Now, the other reason why I, I think that this isn't nearly as likely to happen as people think uh, is, and this is something we've talked about here before on the show, uh, is that uh, we don't have the conservative majority that many conservatives believe we do. Well, and I guess probably many liberals believe we do too. Um, we don't have a 6-3 conservative majority. We have what is essentially a 3-3-3 court. We have only three true conservative justices made up of Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch. And then somewhere to the left of those right judges is John Roberts, Brad Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. And then we have the three liberal justices, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Stephen Breyer, who are just desperate to form a majority with anyone they can. Now, there is a clear majority that does exist on the court. What we do have is a 6-3 majority of judicial supremacists. This would be Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Kavanaugh, Barrett, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer. These are all disciples of the Cooper v. Aaron view of the court. This is the 1958 Seminole Supreme Court case that found that not only uh, is, as the Supremacy Clause in Article 6 states, the Constitution and all the laws made in pursuance thereof the supreme law of the land, the court in Cooper took it a step further decided to rewrite the Constitution from the bench and passed a decision that said decisions of the court that speak to the law are themselves the supreme law of the land. This is the judicial supremacist view, the idea that when the Supreme Court speaks, they are the supreme law of the land. Their word is God. And this is, of course, despite anything in the Constitution that would suggest anything like this. But essentially, this means that there are six justices who are likely going to decide this case not on if abortion is a constitutional right, or if the Mississippi law contradicts the Constitution, or if it contradicts any uh, constitutional federal law. Instead, they will ask if the law contradicts Roe which it does. Since Roe is a case that has already been decided, the six justices on the court will essentially see the opinion in Roe v. Wade, I believe, as the supreme law of the land, and I believe because of that, that Dobbs will likely be struck down, rather than for any of the several much better reasons to strike it down. But, since reaffirming Roe means abortion will continue to exist in its current status quo ante, what possible consequences could be the result of nothing changing, you might be asking? Well, really, 
the only consequences I see here for a reaffirmation of Roe is the effect that this will have on the future of the legal conservative movement, and it is not good. If you are a conservative, at least it isn't. Um, but uh, it will also, unfortunately, uh, I believe, have a uh, very negative effect uh, for those of us who are not conservatives, but who do value constitutional originalism. Now, these are two distinct concepts that have come to be seen as one and the same, though they are not, including by a large number of conservatives who think because they are conservative, they are de facto originalists. I think this is perfectly illustrated by clowns like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who care not a bit for the meaning of the Constitution or even for the notion of limited government. But this is also largely the view of justices such as Chief Justice Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and to a lesser degree, Amy Coney Barrett. So, since I have made an episode about the creation and purpose of the legal philosophies of constitutional originalism and uh, statutory textualism, uh, it, and actually that's a really good video too, I'll put a link to that right up in the corner right about now, and also down in the video description. If you haven't seen that one, I would recommend that one as well. But anyways, uh, I am going to spend this video uh, talking a bit about the creation and the purpose of the legal conservative movement to help try and distinguish what exactly the difference is, and then we will get into why, well not why, I should say what, into what exactly will be the result if this court ends up reaffirming Roe. What does it mean for the future of this conservative movement? So the conservative legal movement finds itself certainly in its most precarious point since its inception in the early 1970s, now, I realize just from the start, this may sound implausible considering that the last four years we saw the appointment of three supposedly conservative Supreme Court justices, uh, dozens of appellate judges, and nearly 200 district court judges, almost all coming from within the ranks of the legal conservative movement. So, again, many people perceive the conservatives on the Supreme Court to have this ostensible 6-3 majority, making it, uh, in all likelihood, the most conservative court that most people will see in their lifetime, it would be easy to conclude that the conservative legal movement is currently at its apogee. But it is precisely the movement's success that puts it in peril. After decades of laying intellectual groundwork, building institutions, and engaging in politics, legal conservatives are in a position to accomplish what they see as the revival of the rule of law. But, with that success has come some high expectations that the Supreme Court will deliver on the legal goals that have sustained the movement through many disappointments and false starts, foremost among these, overruling Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision establishing a constitutional right to an abortion, and also, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the 1992 decision that reaffirmed Roe's central holding. More than any other Supreme Court decision, Roe is responsible for the conservative legal movement. If there were only one reason for the movement to have existed and to have endured now four decades, it would be to see Roe overturned. Now, these will be the stakes when the Supreme Court decides it does be Jackson's women's health. The lawsuit challenges the constitutionality of Mississippi's prohibition on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, and we will be getting the decision from the court next summer. But as of December 1st, when the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case, we got some highlights of what Mississippi and its supporting amici are looking for when they expressly ask the court to overrule Roe and Casey. And Dobbs squarely presents that issue, because, as Jackson's Women's Health Organization asserted in its brief and in oral arguments, Mississippi's ban, quote, directly contravenes Roe's central holding and cannot stand, end quote. So, if Roe remains good law, Dobbs cannot stand. So this, then, would seem to be 
the moment the conservative legal movement has fought to bring about. And if the court fails to overrule Roe, the ruling will likely shatter the movement, and while uh, under a proper conception of the judicial role, the potential effective jobs on the legal movement should be irrelevant to the outcome of the case, it would be a significant legacy of the Robert Courts if Dobbs brought an end to one of the most successful intellectual and political projects of the past half century. Now, that demise would result not only from dashed expectations, but also from intellectual tensions within the conservative legal movement. Present sense is inception and now coming to the fore. The Dobbs decision will likely either increase those tensions to the point of rupture or greatly alleviate them. Next summer will truly be a defining moment in the battle for the Constitution. Now, what we now know as the conservative legal movement was born in the aftermath of the Warren Court, which was a period from 1953 to 1969, when Earl Warren served as Chief Justice. It was a time of tremendous upheaval in American constitutional law. To take just a few examples, the court required states to provide indigent criminal defendants with a lawyer. It mandated the principle of one person, one vote in redistricting, declared a right to use contraception, and required the reading of the so-called Miranda rights to those taken into police custody. All these and many other decisions were controversial and all represented dramatic departures from well-established constitutional law. A revolution in so many areas of law and social life was bound to provoke a counter-revolution in law and politics, and so it did. Now, the legal counter-revolution really began when then-Yale Law professor Robert Bork published an article that began laying the intellectual foundation for the conservative legal movement. This was called Neutral Principles and Some First Amendment Problems. And it argued that the Supreme Court's legitimacy rests on the ability to derive principles neutrally from the text and history of the Constitution, define those principles in a neutral manner, and apply them impartially across cases. To the extent the justices instead derive principles from their own viscera, define them arbitrarily, and apply them inconsistently, Bork wrote, they claim for the Supreme Court an institutionalized role as perpetrators of a limited coup d'etat. Now, Bork cited as a prime instance of this illegitimate decision-making the court's opinion in Griswold v. Connecticut, a 1965 case holding that married couples had a constitutional right to use contraception. And this was a right that the court extended to unmarried individuals in 1972 in a case known as Eisenstadt v. Baird. Now, Griswold famously, uh, I guess probably to most legal conservatives infamously, based its holding on a notion that while no specific provision of the Constitution clearly established the right to use contraception, quote, specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance, end quote. To this, Bork was, Bork said was emblematic of what he saw as lawlessness on the Warren Court. Now, Bork thus began charting an alternative theory of constitutional adjudication based on neutral principles derived from text and history of the Constitution. It was a path that would lead to the development of originalism, and this is a theory that the Constitution's provisions must be interpreted and applied in accordance with the meaning they had when they were ratified. Now, subsequent works by Justices William Rehnquist as well as Harvard Law Professor Raoul Berger furthered originalism's development, and by 1980, it had become a recognized rival to the brand of progressive constitutional jurisprudence that had formerly been embodied by the Warren Court. The election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 proved decisive to originalism's ascendancy. This ushered in a wave of judicial appointments, uh, including Bork himself, uh, getting as high as the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and uh, being recommended to, though not accepted, onto the Supreme Court. 
And we also saw the elevation of committed originalists to senior positions within the Department of Justice. We saw the, the uh, appointment of Justice Rehnquist as Chief Justice and Antonin Scalia as an Associate Justice, along with several uh, high-profile speeches defending originalism delivered by Attorney General Edwin Meese in Reagan's second term. This made it clear that originalism was here to stay. Now, it had become the default theory of constitutional adjudication for a new coalition that formed the conservative legal movement. But from the beginning, two major sources of tension beset this movement. There was a division among originalists and a division between originalists, conservatives, or excuse me, a, a division between originalists and conservative non-originalists. So the first of these was intra-originalist tension between those who saw originalism as a means to achieving some other substantive end, and those for whom it was the only legitimate constitutional methodology. Those holding the instrumentalist view hoped that originalism would achieve various ends, but were usually actually concerned with shrinking the federal judiciary's role in American life after the Warren Court's aggressive intrusion into the political and social realm. Now, they advocated originalism in a way of, as a way of achieving judicial restraint, by which they often meant that the judiciary should generally allow the democratic process to settle controversial political and social questions. Now, Harvard Law Professor James Bradley Thayer had articulated this principle in a 19, excuse me, in an 1893 lecture called The Origin and Scope of the American Doctrine of Constitutional Law. The Supreme Court, Thayer argued, should hold a political act unconstitutional only when those who have the right to make laws have not merely made a mistake, but made a very clear one so that it is not even open to rational question. Progressive constitutional theorists took up Thayer's arguments in the early 20th century as a way of criticizing Supreme Court decisions holding many early progressive and New Deal initiatives unconstitutional. But things took a turn during the Warren Court as the judiciary began assertively intervening in state and federal social policies, leading to New Deal Justice Hugo Black lamenting in his Griswold dissent that the progressive Warren Court had betrayed the judicial restraint principles of the progressive New Deal era. Now, as Princeton professor Keith Whittington has observed, Black's accusation of the Warren Court's hypocrisy in Griswold became a standard attack by the early legal conservatives. Now, Bork made this point explicitly in his 1971 article, as did Rehnquist in an important 1976 lecture that he gave. Early legal conservatism, then, had a strong commitment to judicial restraint, and it saw originalism as a way of reigning in an out-of-control judiciary. An important implication of this view was that, to the extent that originalism did not restrain the judiciary, it should be abandoned as having failed to serve its purpose. So the instrumentalist commitment to originalism was contingent, not based upon deep principles. Now, unlike the instrumentalists, other legal conservatives saw originalism as logically entailed by the Constitution and the principles upon which it rested. This theme, too, can be found in Bork's 1971 article. Bork argued that the principle of our system is that the majority rules, but the majority established limits on its own power through the Constitution, and this placed the judiciary in the position of having to determine, through constitutional interpretation, when the majority has done so. If the court wrongly held that the Constitution limiting majority power when it did not, this abetted tyranny of the minority. If the court held that the Constitution did not limit majority power when it actually did, this would abet tyranny of the majority. Bork called this the Madisonian Dilemma, 
and the only way for the court legitimately to draw the line between majority and minority power, he maintained, was to interpret the Constitution in line with neutral principles that could be achieved only by deriving, defining, and applying those principles based on text and history of the Constitution, that is, through originalism. Now, originalism, for Bork, was the only plausible method of constitutional adjudication because it logically required for the legitimacy of judicial review and, by extension, the Constitution. This commitment to originalism was not contingent. Now, over the next several decades, as scholars and jurists such as Antonin Scalia helped refine the theoretical basis of originalism, the non-instrumentalist view became the dominant one within conservative intellectual circles. And the judicial restraint view did subside, though it has always remained a significant minority position and continues to play an outsized role in conservative political discourse about the court. Now, most legal conservatives came to believe that originalism was the only legitimate constitutional methodology and that the court should enforce the Constitution's original meaning, regardless of how much or how little intrusion was required. That explains why, for instance, Justices Scalia, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito were prepared to throw out the entire Affordable Care Act in what would have been the most important repudiation of the political branches since the New Deal. Now, by contrast, Chief Justice John Roberts, the court's most committed Thayerian, I guess you could say, uh, though, though Roberts has never been a committed originalist, uh, but he, in the case of the Affordable Care Act, was unwilling to go along with this and to throw out the entire legislation. Now, while the tension between instrumentalists and non-instrumentalists might, at first glance, appear to be merely a matter of intellectual history, it does have these kinds of enormous real-world consequences. Now, as I said, the second tension, which is equally significant uh, from the beginning of the legal conservative movement, is they have disagreed about whether originalism rests on a sufficiently robust moral foundation. All constitutional theories, including originalism, ultimately require a moral argument for why we should obey the Constitution. Even if a judge believes, based on some ostensibly moral neutral reason, that the only way to interpret a historical document like the Constitution faithfully is according to its original meaning, that does not show that the judge should care about faithfully interpreting the Constitution. If we are not bound by the Constitution, the judge would be free to ignore a faithful interpretation and proceed to rewrite the Constitution instead. To explain why this would be wrong, one needs to show that the judge had an obligation to obey the Constitution as written. Moreover, the moral stance shapes how we interpret the Constitution because this tells us the purpose of interpreting it. For example, a judge believes, as many progressive constitutional theorists do, that the only way the Constitution can have a morally binding force is if its meaning can be revised without a formal constitutional amendment, and that moral justification would require rejecting originalism and embracing a theory that allowed judges to change the document's meaning over time. So, since originalism, like any other constitutional theory, ultimately rests on a moral argument, it can be challenged by those who find that argument insufficient. As former Amherst professor Hadley Arcus wrote in First Things recently, and he was addressing both originalism and his statutory uh, companion, textualism, that because originalism is deeply reluctant to make the move beyond tradition and the text to the moral truth of the matter, it indeed has nothing to say on matters of real consequence it is a morally empty jurisprudence. Now, more recently, Harvard Law Professor uh, Adrian Vermeule has become the leading critic of originalism from the right by contending that originalism is essentially morally bankrupt. Vermeule's views are complex, but what he has written thus far attacks originalism 
from the perspective of a natural law tradition in which the moral legitimacy of the Constitution as a form of positive law depends on its accordance with the natural law as nothing in originalism requires it to accord with the natural law vermeule argues no morally compelling argument favors it now the moral critique of originalism came to the fore in the summer of 2020 when the supreme court decided the case of bostock versus clayton county which held that title seven of the civil rights act of eight of 1964 prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender status. Now, the case involved statutory interpretation, which is to say textualism, and not the constitutional interpretation of originalism, but really the justification for and methodology of textualism overlaps significantly with originalism, which is why moral critics of originalism often use the term interchangeably with textualism. Now, Arcus, for instance, argued that the Bostock opinion written by originalist and textualist Neil Gorsuch proved that originalism lacks a sufficiently compelling moral account. Following Bostock, the conservative legal movement expressed widespread frustration with and disillusionment with originalism, as manifested by Senator Josh Hawley uh, and his statement that Bostock represented the end of the conservative legal movement. Now, my own anecdotal sense is that the Vermilion critique of originalism has gained significant momentum among the younger legal conservative generation ever since Bostock. Uh, once again, what might seem like a mere intellectual history does in fact have potentially profound practical consequences since the triumph of the Vermilion critique would really be the end of the originalist project that has been at the heart of legal conservatism for decades. Now, for nearly about, well, 50 years now, the goal of overruling Roe has united all sides, instrumentalists and non-instrumentalist originalists, critics of originalism's morality, and its defenders. It is the only case that inspires such fervent agreement with the intellectual wing of legal conservatism. So, Roe is unique among modern constitutional decisions in the intensity with which it has been resisted. It was, in Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's words, an overly breathtaking decision. Four characteristics of the decision engendered the immediate and enduring backlash. First, Roe was unexpected. No long series of discussions or decisions had telegraphed the future recognition of this new right. Uh, unlike, for example, the court's 2015 decision in Obergefell v. Hodges that required states to recognize same-sex marriages, which people had seen coming for quite some time. Second, Roe was extraordinarily sweeping in its implications. Roe did not merely invalidate the statute challenged in the case. It in combination with this companion case of Doe v. Bolton, effectively invalidated the abortion laws of all 50 states and effectively mandated that the right to abortion be protected all the way up to the moment of birth. Third, Roe wrote into America's fundamental law what many Americans saw then and many Americans will still see now as a right to kill babies. Finally, Roe was and is widely perceived as having no plausible legal basis, as commentators from both the left and the right have stated when it was handed down. And as then uh, Yale law professor John Hart Ely, a supporter of the policy outcome dictated by Roe, Noted immediately after the decision, Roe is bad because it is bad constitutional law, or rather because it is not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to try to be constitutional law. Indeed, it is notable that at the December 1st oral arguments for Dobbs, none of the justices or advocates who support 
Roe devoted much time to defending the decision as an original matter, instead relying primarily on the principles of stare decisis. This is the idea of precedent, that the court should stand by its previous decisions, even if they're wrong. The plain truth is, the only people who like Roe are people who have never read it. And that is universal. It doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. The only people who like Roe are people who haven't read it. Now, these characteristics of Roe had different political and legal effects. Politically, Roe became a case that social conservatives could rally against. While the conservative legal movement started as a reaction against the Warren court, it matured in reaction against the Warren and Burger courts because of Roe. The imperative to select justices who would overrule Roe was a major reason the social conservatives joined the broad coalition that supported Ronald Reagan. As reflected in the 1980 Republican Party platform, promising, quote, the appointment of judges at all levels of the judiciary who respect traditional family values and the sanctity of innocent human life, end quote. Now, it is also the primary reason that anti-abortion voters have continued to support the Republican Party in the four decades since 1980, including through bruising and not always successful confirmation battles. Even after the deep disappointment of the court's refusal to overrule Roe in Casey, a refusal spearheaded by three Reagan and Bush-nominated justices, these voters stayed with the broader conservative legal movement, always being promised that overruling Roe was just around the corner. Without these voters, the legal movement would never have achieved the success that it has had in remaking the federal judiciary, since political victories are needed to change the orientation of legal institutions. Now, Dahlia Lithwick has rightly observed that the notion that Roe created an almost irreversible political backlash that led to the creation of the powerful modern conservative movement is almost an article of faith among legal academics. Legally, Roe catalyzed the nascent conservative legal movement. Legal conservatives from all camps came to see Roe as a constitutional abomination that had to be overturned. From the instrumentalist perspective of the judicial restraint, judicial restraint conservatives, Roe remains the most aggressive judicial intervention into American social policy since Brown v. Board of Education. But unlike Brown, where the vast majority of originalists embrace it as being rightly decided, no plausible originalist argument exists for Roe. So the non-instrumentalist view of originalism has always aligned against Roe too. Now overruling Roe would, as Justice Brett Kavanaugh put it during the Dobbs oral argument, allow the court to remain scrupulously neutral on questions of abortion, an issue that inspires a fervor match by few in American history. And because originalism's moral critics within the conservative legal movement are typically social conservatives who regard legalized abortion as moral evil rivaled only in our history by legalized slavery, they too have unflinchingly opposed Roe. So, many positions generate significant divisions among legal conservatives, but that Roe is uniquely lawless and must be overruled is not among them. So Dobbs has the potential to destroy this unity. Just as the goal of overruling Roe is unique in its ability to unite the movement, the failure to overrule Roe in Dobbs would be unique in its ability to destroy the movement. Expectations play a decisive role in this dynamic, though, and again, under a proper understanding of the judicial role, those, expect those expectations should play no role in the court's decision in Dobbs, they are essential in considering the potential effects of Dobbs on the conservative legal movement. On the political side, the failure of the Reagan and Bush appointees to overrule Roe in Casey was a huge blow to the conservative legal movement, and the feeling of disgust after decades of politics and legal efforts was palpable. Nonetheless, the movement pressed on, 
Over the next 30 years, in the intervening period, two of the five justices who voted to reaffirm Roe's central holding in Casey were replaced with committed originalists, as was Justice Ginsburg. Each of these replacements, Justices Alito Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, involved tremendous risks and expenditures of political capital. And, in the case of Alito, and especially in the case of Kavanaugh, perseverance through very vicious confirmation battles. Now, the conservative legal movement fought these battles with the expectation that, when the day came, the reconstituted court would finally consign Roe and Casey to the anti-canon of disgraced constitutional cases alongside its segregation-defending decision in Plessy v. Ferguson from 1896. Now, that day has arrived. In its opening brief last summer, Mississippi could have unconvincingly tried to argue that its abortion restriction was consistent with Roe and Casey, or that those cases only had to be overruled in part. Instead, it adopted a more coherent approach, spending most of its brief urging the court to overrule those cases entirely. One reason Mississippi might have taken that approach is that, as Notre Dame law professor uh, Sheriff Gurgis has argued, there is no logically sound way for the court to uphold Mississippi's law without overruling Roe and Casey, since those cases prohibit states from banning abortion before the child reaches viability, as Mississippi's statute clearly does. Indeed, as noted above, Jackson's Women's Health Organization has made precisely the same argument as Gurgis before the Supreme Court. They said, quote, there are no half measures here. The organization reinforced that view at oral argument in response to questions, to questions by Justice Gorsuch, as did the Solicitor General in support of Jackson's Women's Health Organization. Now, regardless of why Mississippi decided to make overruling the focus of its brief, it raised expectations of what the court would do in Dobbs. These expectations were reinforced when, in the week after Mississippi filed this brief, almost three-quarters of the amicus curiae briefs filed in support of the state called for overruling Roe and Casey. And they were solidified after oral argument, when at least five of the conservative justices did ask questions that were widely interpreted as signaling at least a willingness to overrule Roe and Casey, with both Jackson's Women's Health Organization and the Solicitor General likewise arguing that the court must either reaffirm or overrule Roe and Casey. Legal conservatives now expect that, after nearly 50 years of unceasing effort to overrule Roe, they will finally see the court do it. If it does not, a sense of betrayal and disillusionment will follow. That would place enormous strain on the intellectual fault lines within the movement. Now, if a Supreme Court with a uh, supposedly 6-3 conservative majority consisting of five committed originalists refuses to overrule Roe and Casey, uh, it, well, I, I don't know if they have five committed originalists. I think they have three committed originalists and two questionable originalists, but we'll just say five. Um, yeah, so if it, if it is unlikely that these five so-called committed originalists refuse to overrule Roe and Casey, it is unlikely that any originalist court will ever do so. And this raises serious questions within the conservative legal movement about its attachment to originalism. Immediate recriminations and accusations of betrayal would ensue, likely tearing the movement apart. Those who offer a moral critique of originalism would point to Dobbs as proof positive that originalism lacks the moral foundation necessary to be a plausible constitutional methodology. Vermeule has openly predicted that 
quote, if Roe, not merely just Casey, survives in any form without being overturned in Dobbs, it will represent a shattering crisis for the conservative legal movement, end quote. If the court fails to overrule Roe and Casey, there is a very good chance that Remuel would become the most important intellectual figure in whatever succeeds our current legal conservative movement. Similarly, those advocating an instrumental view of originalism, especially in favor of judicial restraint, would have very good reason to question whether originalism actually achieves the restrained judiciary that they favor since the failure to overrule Roe would keep the court enmeshed in the most contentious social issue in America without clear constitutional warrant. Now, some may argue that the more restrained position would be to uphold Roe, since that would be minimally disruptive to American constitutional law, but Chief Justice Roberts, the most committed judicial restraint member of the court, has shown himself willing to make great changes in constitutional law to keep the court out of political and social policy if the court's intervention has no firm constitutional basis. For example, he wrote the court's opinion in Ruko v. Common Cause in 2019, which held that the federal judiciary had no authority to adjudicate political gerrymandering challenges in redistricting maps. That controversial decision ended several decades of gerrymandering jurisprudence, but its effect was to withdraw the court from fraught political and social battles. Those who believe that originalism is the only legitimate methodology of constitutional adjudication would really have no logical reason to abandon their view, since it is not based on the result that originalism achieves, but their theoretical arguments would sound a lot less convincing to an audience that has witnessed such a seismic failure of originalism to translate its arguments into reality. Just as those arguments have already lost some of their purchase after Bostock, the conservative legal movement has always been an intensely intellectual, but also intensely practical movement. A methodology right in theory, but self-defeating in practice, will simply not retain many adherents. Now, what if the court instead adopts some middle ground? Sustain the Mississippi statute without overruling Roe, but lay the groundwork for overruling Roe later. That is what the court did in a series of cases leading up to the Janus v. AFSCME case of 2018, in which the court overruled a previous precedent, uh, Abood v. Detroit Board of Education in 1977, which had allowed public sector unions to collect union fees from non-union members. But two key factors render that step-by-step approach implausible in Dobbs. First, as Gurgis points out, because of the factual context of Dobbs, it's straight-on challenge to the core tenant of Roe and Casey, it is really impossible for the court to craft a logical opinion that sets up the eventual overruling of those two decisions, which was not true of cases involved preceding Janus. Instead, any middle ground opinion would have to divorce the viability standard from Casey's undue burden standard, which Gurgis rightly argues would fundamentally rewrite Casey in a way that would make it very, very difficult for the same court to later overrule. Second, as noted above, both Jackson's Women's Health Organization and the Solicitor General essentially disavowed such a middle ground opinion in their briefs at oral argument. And Mississippi's briefs effectively acknowledged that an incrementalist approach would be unprincipled or unworkable. Thus, neither side in Dobbs is seeking a middle ground and none of the justices at oral argument, other than perhaps the Chief Justice, seem interested in such an approach. In light of those two factors, and the expectations of full overruling, commentators make a serious mistake if they think that a 
timid first step opinion, making yet another promise of Rose's eventual demise, would avoid a potentially fatal blow to the conservative legal movement. A forthright overruling of Roe, however, would significantly alleviate the tensions within the movement and bolster its long-term outlook. It would, in the eyes of the instrumentalists and non-instrumentalist originalists alike, vindicate their half-century support for originalism. It would take much of the wind out of the sails of originalism's moral critics since originalism will have been the means of achieving the critics' most earnestly sought moral goal. There is likely no avoiding the consequences, then, for the conservative legal movement in Dobbs. It is either complete victory or crisis-inducing defeat. Well, that is really all I have for you guys here today. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I, I know you've been doing a lot of abortion stuff lately. I'm going to be getting off that here uh, really soon. I've got some really good videos coming up uh, that are on uh, completely different topics. I think you guys will really like them. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, in the meantime, uh, if you like the video, go ahead, hit that thumbs up button. If you hate it, hit the thumbs down button, I, I guess. Um, if you're not subscribed to the channel, take a second and uh, do that so you always know when I put out my latest work. Um, and then if you want to support the channel uh, with a donation, you can either do so uh, by signing up through Patreon or you can go to PayPal and give like a little one-time tip in my tip jar. Uh, either of those would be very, very much appreciated. But if you're not able to do that right now, I completely understand. And I still appreciate you being here and giving me some of your time today all the same. Uh, now remember to let me know what you think about the changes that I'm going to be doing to the show with the background over the next couple of videos. Uh, and I guess that's really all I got. So uh, until... Next time, this has been me, Locking Liberal, for Categorical Imperatives, talking about abortion, and of course, as always, Delenda S. Carthago. Fuck